our next and final speaker um, is Dr. Crystal Evans. I've had the pleasure of sitting next to her this evening. Chris, um, Dr. Crystal Evans is a medical researcher from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Um, she's currently working on the development of a new malaria vaccine. She is also a regular presenter on the 3RRR FM science radio show, Einstein Agogo. Welcome, Dr. Crystal Evans. Thanks very much to the organisers for inviting me and thank you all for turning out. Melbourne's probably the only city in the world where it's raining is a legitimate excuse not to go outside. Um, I wanted to ask you, have you ever Googled the term scientist and clicked on that little image box and see what comes up? I can tell you it's really disappointing. You are, when, you, when you do so, you're, you're um, given a, a panel of images which are mostly cartoons of old men with white hair and glasses holding bubbling test tubes of things that look nothing like any experiment that I've ever done. Um, if you try famous scientist, well, <laughs> it's even worse. You have to scroll a very long way before women get a look in. Um, you know, you might stumble across Mary Curie or Rosalind Franklin, but you know, it's a long way down the list. So tonight, I wanted to feature women, a woman in science who has been influential in my career and to many other young Australian scientists, and that's the microbiologist Dora Lush. Now, Dora doesn't fill all of the criteria that James outlined earlier in that she is no longer with us, but um, she did do her seminal work uh, very close to here in Melbourne. See, Dora was born in 1910, when here in Melbourne, in Hawthorne, when, when Melbourne was actually the capital of Australia and uh, the VFL had only just introduced the, the free kick rule. Um, she was born into a family that valued education. Her aunt, Mabel Lush, uh, was a pioneer of early childhood uh, and kindergarten here in Melbourne, and her brother, George Lush, uh, became a Supreme Court judge and actually was the um, Chancellor of Monash University, I believe there's a building, the Sir George Lush building, uh, dedicated to him on campus. And so she came from a family that valued education, and so she went to school at uh, Fintona Girls grammar, um, Fintona Girls School in Camberwell. And in her senior years, she took physics and chemistry in 19, this would have been 1928. And then she went on to undertake a Bachelor of Science at the University of Melbourne. And what I find remarkable about, remarkable about this is not that, oh, wow, you know, it's 1928 and she's doing science. It was the fact that at this time, it was wholly unremarkable that Dora would be studying science because in the 1930s, it was actually quite a normal thing to do. In fact, that um, women actually made up a large percentage of science graduates up until the end of the Second World War. And, you know, so 30 or 40% of the women studying science at this... At the, of the students studying science at this time would be women. And, and, and this even, you know, was reflected in the demonstrators and the teachers. Uh, I think at this time at the University of Melbourne during the 1930s, three out of seven of the senior academics in biological sciences were women. And so, you know, 
at this time, Dora would not have had any sense that she was doing anything particularly unusual for a woman of her background and of her education. So she was at the University of Melbourne, she was studying a Bachelor of Science, and then she went on to do a Master's, and the university decided to found the Department of uh, Bacteriology, and this was driven in response to some quite serious public health issues that Melbourne was experiencing, because Melbourne was a very different city in the 1930s. Um, they had quite a high level of serious infectious diseases, things like tuberculosis, diphtheria, measles and typhoid were all rife throughout Melbourne because these were the days before antibiotics. And so infectious diseases actually accounted for around sort of 15% of all deaths. And this was actually quite high in children under the age of five. It was quite, quite high that you would, you would know someone um, or a family member or, or someone that you knew would, would actually die of an infectious disease, which is not something that we see at such high levels today. And so I feel like Dora was really drawn to this new discipline of um, bacteriology. And so when she graduated, she actually got a university research scholarship um, to undertake work at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, which, disclaimer, is also where I work. Um, but at WeHi, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, was a very different place in those days. It's the oldest medical research institute in Australia and um, will actually be celebrating its centenary next year. So the, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute was established in 1950. Um, and so next year will be the centenary celebration. But at this time, unlike its very big shiny building where it is right now in Parkville, um, the WeHi was actually located at the Melbourne Hospital in Lonsdale Street. And this is where Dora went in 1933 to begin her research career. And at this time, there are actually seven full-time staff employed at the Institute. And of those, four, four out of seven were actually women. And so Dora would probably have felt quite at home in that research environment. Now, she worked alongside uh, McFarlane Burnett, who some of you will have heard of because he um, went on to win the Nobel Prize for his contributions to immunology. And Dora worked quite closely with, with Mac Burnett, Mac as he was known. And, um, and she, was, uh, she worked as an undergraduate sort of research scholar and she was quickly promoted to a research fellow in 1935, aged 25 years of age. And she studied bacteria. She studied bacteria that caused disease and she wanted to find ways of killing bacteria. And this is before antibiotics. And, and her line of, of her approach, her line of research was actually to study things called bacteriophages. And bacteriophages are viruses, but they're viruses that infect bacteria. And so there was this idea that if you could find a virus that infected and killed a bacteria, that that actually might be a way of treating disease. And so these could potentially be used as therapeutics. So there was, she, was, she was interested in viruses. She was interested in killing bacteria. This kind of led her to study more virology. And, um, and so she actually went on to actually study more and more viruses. And so Dora was, was in her early 20s. And, and she was known for her passion and her enthusiasm for life, both in and out of the lab. She's described as outgoing and sporty. She was a, a good dancer. She was a great squash player and she liked skiing. You know, it kind of sounds like a bit of a dating profile. She was tall with auburn hair. Um, she always wore, she's immaculately presented. And um, she always wore heels, both in and out of the lab. Just some nice three inch kitten heels. Um, <laughs> But even though this sounds like a dating profile, that we, there's almost no information about Dora's personal life and she never married. And in some ways I feel that this actually may have been a deliberate choice on her behalf because although there were many women employed in science, um, after their, they got married, uh, often many working women were no longer allowed to continue in their employment. 
And there are notes, actually, of uh, female colleagues of Dora's um, at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute who left to be married. So, um, above all things, uh, it appears that Dora was dedicated to her work. And uh, Mac Burnett describes her as the most outstandingly competent bacteriologist that I have ever worked in with, because that was her real value, her technical skills and her efficiency in approaching scientific problems. Because one of the challenges with working with infectious diseases is that you actually have to have some of the infectious disease to be able to study it. And have you seen the movie Contagion? There's a brilliant quote in it, which is brilliant to no one else except for me. I thought it was fantastic because there's a quote when they, they've got, the, they've got the, they're trying to look for a, a cure for this pandemic virus that's emerged, that's, that's killing people all across the world. And, and, the, and they're under pressure to find a vaccine and to find a cure. And this poor researcher just cracks it. And she says, until we can grow it and a great deal of it, we can't experiment with it. And until then, we can't vaccinate against it. And I thought, yes, that is the challenge of infectious disease all summed up because this is what, this is the challenge that Dora faced because she, her contribution to knowledge wasn't actually through a particular discovery, but it was because she was technically proficient in new ways of growing uh, viruses and that her work um, through mastering new technology actually created ways of growing viruses on the membranes of eggs and this allowed people to finally study them and to work out how to kill them. And so, so her contribution to knowledge really wasn't a particular unique discovery, but it was a technology platform that she herself was incredibly masterful at. And so she actually studied a wide variety of viruses, flu, herpes, polio. She was involved in the early development of myxomatosis. And she published more than a dozen papers, often um, uh, alongside McFarlane Burnett. So they co-published together. She published her own research. She was published in The Lancet. And um, and sometimes I look at her publication record and I think, gee, it's kind of better than mine. But um, outside the laboratory, um, one of the things that was having a major impact in Melbourne society in the 1930s, aside from the Great Depression, was actually uh, polio epidemics. And so polio, which is also known as infant paralysis because it seemed to target children between the ages of five and ten, uh, polio was a huge problem in Melbourne. There was a big polio epidemic in the winter of um, 1937. It filled hospital beds. Um, it was particularly bad here in Brunswick and in Footscray. Those were the two suburbs that were hardest hit. And sort of by Christmas, um, there had been over 900 cases and that 48 people had died. So it's not surprising at this time that, you know, in 1937 that, that Dora Lush's research actually started to, to focus on the issues at hand. She thought, right, polio, I want to do something about this. The problem was there wasn't really any way of studying polio at that time in Melbourne. And so she did what a lot of young Australian researchers do, is that she decided to go overseas to get some experience, to get some techniques, and to come back and bring them back to Melbourne. And, you know, this is something I did myself. You know, I, I was a researcher, I'm a researcher, I went over to the UK and I came back to Melbourne. And so this is a really traditional career path even now that Dora was following. And so she decided that she would go to London. So early in 1939, uh, Dora planned to go to the National Institute for Medical Research in London to study polio. Of course, in 1939, there was quite a lot of other large global issues at play and um, the, the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, but, and this threatened to interrupt her plans, but she was determined she was still going to go. Despite the war, despite everything, Dora really wanted to go to London um, and to study, to study polio. But when she got there, she decided that actually to contribute to the war effort, she would change the focus of her research and she would study influenza because there had been the large influenza flu outbreaks, the Spanish flu in 1917, 1918. And there's quite a lot of concern about, about flu and 
that her contribution to the war effort in London um, would be to work on flu. And, and she was there during the Blitz, and she was right there. Um, the National Institute um, for Medical Research in London was actually in Hampstead. And so I imagine Dora Lush um, huddled in some of those tube stations where they had the air raid shelters, um, you know, waiting for the all clear so she could go back to the lab and, and do her work. And, and she stayed there for about three years. And during that time, again, in, a, in an effort to contribute to the, to the war effort, um, she shifted her research to a disease that was a little bit more closer to her Australian home, and that was to study something called scrub typhus. Um, now, we don't get a lot of scrub typhus these days, but at the time, scrub typhus was an incredibly um, serious problem for troops who were stationed in the South Pacific region, particularly in Papua New Guinea, where Australia had quite a lot of troops during the Second World War. Now, scrub typhus is called such because it's transmitted by little mites that live on the backs of rodents that hang around in scrub and bushland. So it was called scrub typhus because when you've been going through the, the, the woody scrub, you would pick up mites, mite bites, that's tricky, and, um, and become infected with scrub typhus. And scrub typhus we know now is caused by a bacteria. It's a tiny rod-shaped organism that lives actually inside other cells in the body. So when it infects you, it's not just in your bloodstream, it's actually inside your own cells. And sometimes it's the very cells of the immune system that are sent out to kill the bacteria that end up getting infected and become victim to that bacterial disease. And so scrub typhus infected about 3,000 Australian troops during the Second World War, led to hundreds of deaths and was considered to be a research priority. And at this time, medical research across Australia, across the world, was fully focused on diseases and things that would actually you know, help support our troops. And so this, this, this research into scrub typhus actually brought Dora back from London, back to Melbourne in September of 1942. So... Again, there was the problem of if you can't grow it, you can't study it. And it turned out that scrub typhus as a bacteria was actually really difficult to culture in the lab. And the only way of sustaining the growth of scrub typhus was actually um, through mice. And so Dora came back to the Walter and Liza Hall Institute um, where she would receive blood samples from patients um, that had, who had scrub typhus. And she would then inject these into, into mice to be able to grow uh, and propagate the bacteria because she knew that if you want to be able to find a cure, if you want to create a vaccine, which was her ultimate goal, um, that you would have to be, have a way of growing this particular um, pathogen. So she would get samples of infected blood and it was quite dangerous work such that on Tuesday the 27th of April in 1943, she was injecting a mouse with scrub typhus and she slipped and she accidentally pricked the index finger of her left hand. And I think at that moment she might have known. She knew she was working with a really pathogenic, virulent strain from a patient and that at this time, there was no cure for scrub typhus. And so she washed out the wound, she, she, she did everything she could, but a few days later, it was clear that she was starting to develop the first signs of scrub typhus. She got a terrible fever, she developed a cough, she was admitted to the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And the disease progressed quite quickly, untreated, because there was no treatment, there was no cure. She developed a rash, she developed pneumonia, and she eventually um, died on the 20th of May in 1943, just three weeks after her fatal accident. And this, this was pretty, pretty intense. Um, and also during this time, when, when Dora was lying on her deathbed, she was actually still thinking about research. 
She was in, she was demanding that they took her blood and that they take it back to the lab and that they try and propagate the disease and that, that even, you know, knowing that she would probably succumb to her illness, she was still insisting that the research should go on. And this caught the public imagination. She was hailed as a martyr to science and to the war effort. There were stories of her death and announcements all across the newspapers. The Melbourne uh, newspaper, The Argus, carried, you know, this big headline, Lost Life in the Cause of Science, Death of Woman bacteriologist. Dora had truly given her life to the cause of science. And perhaps for me, one of the saddest things of all is that only a few years later it was discovered that antibiotics would have cured her. And there was actually no need for a vaccine because there were quite effective drugs available, which is fantastic for anyone who has this disease now. And now scrub typhus is actually an incredibly uh, low risk um, and very few people contract this disease. So Poor Dora um, was, was lost. She um, was deeply mourned by her family and friends and colleagues. And her, her mentor and colleague, McFarlane Burnett, wrote in her memorial that she had a full life and a gallant death. Now, th that was 1943. Our story skips forwards now uh, 50 years. Still at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute in 1993, um, coming up to the 50th anniversary of the death of Dora Lush. And at that time, uh, a professor called uh, Sol Ensel, Professor Sol Ensel, he was a um, member of the National Health and Medical Research Council, and he was looking for a way to honour Dora Lush, and he got chatting with uh, the then director at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, uh, Gus Nossel, who some of you might know, uh, and, um, and, and they decided that they would name the National Health and Medical Research Council's postgraduate scholarships after Dora Lush as a, uh, as a reminder that, that medical research is selfless and sometimes dangerous and to highlight the contribution of women, of Australian women, to science. And so they named this scholarship, and this scholarship is for PhD students. So any PhD students who were sponsored by the National Health and Medical Research Council would become Dora Lush scholars. And the reason why this has particular relevance to me is that I was a Dora Lush scholar, and that was the scholarship I applied for when I wanted to do my PhD on an infectious disease, on malaria. And, um, and I, um, I didn't grow up in Melbourne. I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Wollongong in my hometown. Um, and it was this Dora Lush scholarship that actually allowed me to come here to Melbourne to, to start my career working in malaria. And um, at, at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, there was, I remember in the library, there was this photograph of Dora Lush, and she's, you know, 1930. She looked like a glamorous Hollywood starlet in this gorgeous photo. And I remember it was in the library, and I'd be up there late at night photocopying. This is the days before we had online PDFs. And, um, and, I, and I would sometimes think about what, what is it that Dora Lush might have gone on to if McFarlane Burnett, the Nobel Prize winner, described her as the most competent bacteriologist he'd ever worked with. You know, what is it that she didn't achieve? And I kind of in, imbued a real responsibility um, that, you know, that I, as a Dora Lush scholar funded in her name, um, you know, had to make a significant contribution, sort of a legacy on her behalf. And, and that this is kind of how I feel like that all of these Dora Lush scholars out there are all going on and doing research in her name. 
And, um, and the NHMRC still has this scholarship. The rules have changed slightly, but in a really nice way, in that the Dora Lush scholarships are now available to people whose careers have been interrupted for whatever reason, when they haven't been able to pursue their studies, and you know whether that be for things like family commitments um, or, or interrupted um, sort of careers. And that you know the Dora Lush scholars who were announced this year, you know, are doing things like you know looking at brain injury in children. They're developing drugs to stop the spread of prostate cancer, and that they're looking how to repair the architecture of an ageing eye to prevent blindness. And I think these are amazing things that Dora Lush didn't get to do, but that people are now doing in her name. And a lot of the applications for the Dora Lush Scholarship last year, 80% of the applications were actually from women. So I feel like this is enabling Australian women to go on and make great contributions in science because this is something that actually goes sort of widely unremarked. We don't really... If you said, name some you know, famous Australian female scientists, you know, you might struggle, you might, you might come up with a couple, but, um, but they're not well known. And so I actually want to end my talk with a plug for an event that's happening. The Australian Academy of Science is running a Wikibomb event during National Science Week to increase the number of Wikipedia entries for Australian women scientists to sort of, um, to look, not just scientists, so anyone from science, maths, uh, engineering backgrounds, to publicly acknowledge the work of Australian women and, and to inspire the next generation of children. And as, part of that and as part of that event, I intend to write a Wikipedia entry for Dora Lush. Thank you.